Hi, I'm Mark Scott, Secretary of the New South Wales Department of Education, and welcome to Every Student, the podcast where I get to introduce you to some of our great leaders in education. And today my special guest is John Hattie, Laureate Professor of the Melbourne Graduate School of Education and Chair of the Australian Institute for Teaching and School Leadership. John's work is internationally acclaimed and his influential book, Visible Learning, is to be believed to be the world's largest evidence-based study into the factors that improve student learning. And he's just the person to put into context the effects of COVID-19 on student learning and to help us think through how we best return our students to the classroom and what the balance of the 2020 school year should look like. John, welcome to the Every Student Podcast. Great to be with you, Mark. John, at the beginning of the school year, we would have thought that you know bushfires would have been the major impact on teaching and learning in many of our schools. Since then, we've had floods, and now, of course, COVID-19. Um, this week, uh, students are returning to the classroom really for the first time in many, many weeks, nine weeks of disruption if you include the school holidays. And over this break, we've, over this period, we've seen a phenomenal transformation in how students teach and how uh, teachers teach and how students learn. And they had to respond very quickly to the challenge. What do you think we've learnt about the impact of this sustained shutdown on teaching and learning? Oh, Mark, it's... The other way of seeing it is it's kind of like an unplanned experiment in that you know, we've asked teachers to take on an incredible load, switching to a new way of teaching students to do the same thing. And in many cases, there's some pretty stunning and impressive examples of um, a, a different way of learning, uh, a learning from it, in a sense, a distance, homeschooling. Um, and I think that there are so much that we can learn from this that we can bring back to the new normal uh, from this. Um, on the other hand, if you think of it in terms of, you say, about nine weeks, uh, it's, it's longer than the normal end of the year vacation, that's for sure. But the effect is, for most students, is not going to be that dramatic. Um, once again, teachers starting up school again this week in New South Wales, they're going to be quite dramatically exciting in terms of looking at the boosting that they will do, the way in which they will make that recovery very fast. And uh, heaven help us, we have no more of this this year. But I'm pretty optimistic that um, we're going to make a full recovery from this. And in many cases, there is going to be even some benefits from what's happened. I want to come to the benefits in a moment. But when we, when we focus on the impact of disruption, I know you've done uh, work on the impact of the Christchurch earthquake on teaching and learning outcomes. We've also looked back on what research shows us after Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans some years ago. Uh, what do we know about you know sudden and unpredicted disruptions into student learning during the academic year? Well, in many of those cases, the actual students did better in the year in which they had the disruption. And that was primarily because um, when you have these disruptions, such as we've just had with COVID, uh, teachers go into a more of a, a triage situation. They are much more aware and listen to what students actually bring to that session, what they know, uh, what they're learning, the formative evaluation goes up, and that's where the benefit comes off. So, uh, sadly, at times, when they come back to the normal class, the kids come to the class to get what all kids need, which is not necessarily what all kids need. And so during these times, teachers take on a much more refined uh, focus on individual students and following them through. And certainly after the Christchurch earthquake, the performance went up. Sadly, a year later, it went back down again as they went back to the normal. And Hurricane Katrina... Uh, now, there was cir different circumstances there, 
uh, many of the kids went back to different schools, not to the same schools. Actually, they went back to better schools. And so there are lots of different reasons why kids do better in these circumstances. And certainly I would expect, um, you know, there was a report uh, from my own graduate school on the weekend of sort of a first look here in Australia at some of the excitingly positive things that are happening because teachers can't do the normal and they are very adept and fast at learning how to deal with the new normal. Hope we don't forget that. And, and, and you're saying, John, that you think teachers are going to be paying very close attention to the assessment of student progress, particularly as students return to the classroom for the first time after nine weeks, and that in a sense well, it'll be a more granular and sophisticated uh, engagement with student learning that we'll see uh, in coming weeks and months. Well, I would argue that's certainly what has been happening at the moment. Uh, what I would also argue that when the students come back, we don't assume that they're all somehow stressed, that they're all lacking in their learning, etc. But we treat it as a excellent diagnosis period because we're going to be surprised there are going to be some students that haven't done so well over these last nine weeks that can easily slip into um, un underneath the radar we're very good in education and coming up with categories of kids and grouping kids and we talk about autism we talk about low socioeconomic we talk about aboriginal as if they're all in the same situation um, and like take aboriginal kids there is half the aboriginal kids above the average uh, some of those will do extremely well in the circumstance. And so the message, therefore, is we have to be very, very careful in the first week or so back, first couple of weeks back, that we do excellent diagnosis of what has happened. Like some students may never have logged on during the nine weeks for all kinds of reasons. Uh, access to technology, they weren't interested in school before, they weren't interested in school at home, they had parents who weren't overseeing them in the same way that other parents did. And so those kids are going to lose out and they're going to come from all different kinds of circumstances. So the message is that let's not go back and teach as we did normally because it ain't normal. Let's go back and make sure that we spend the next first two weeks of doing very good diagnosis of what the kids have learned, how they've caught up, whether they're not caught up, et cetera. Just don't assume. You've talked Otherwise, we're going to miss it. You've talked about how we need to give up some of the old grammar of schooling and move to the new normal of learning. What do you mean by the grammar of schooling? Well, this has been, if you're Rip Van Winkle and you came back 150 years later, like today, I went into a classroom. You could go into a classroom and you could teach exactly as you did 150 years ago. Like as teachers, we talk a lot. Oh my gosh, I'm an academic. We talk even more. We talk between 80 to 90% of the day. We ask 200 questions, mostly about the facts and the content. We give less than a one to two second response for those questions. Um, we give a lot of feedback about the content. This is the typical grammar of schooling. And, and Mark, it's kind of worked for most kids. And there's a conspiracy. And the conspiracy is kids above average want the teacher to talk more. They want more factual questions and more content about and subject matter vocabulary because they know how to play that game. It's the kids below average that want the teachers to shut up and listen to them how they think, explain, and understand the, their way of verbalizing and working out what the problems are. And during the COVID, that happened so frequently. Teachers had to listen into the students. There was probably much more student talk than there was as much teacher talk. There was more dialogue. And so that's the new grammar of schooling I think we should embrace and work from. But if we go back to the old grammar and we stand up the front, we talk a lot, we instruct, we orchestrate. Uh, on the one hand, it works for most kids, but for many kids, this COVID has showed them that people do care about how they think. They are allowed to think aloud. It is safe to do that. Uh, there is someone there listening 
who has expertise, not just talking who has expertise. So this is where that old current grammar of schooling, and, and, and sadly, when you look at the Christchurch earthquake, you look at the hurricanes, the strikes, the wars, all that, the sad fact is we rush back to the old normal, we rush back to the old grammar of schooling so fast, we miss the opportunity. One of the things we've seen through uh, students having success in home learning is how important self-regulation uh, is for them uh, and how they've actually flourished in an environment where self-regulation has been a priority. What about the benefits for students of self-regulation and how do we teach self-regulation in a regular school environment? Well, you're, you're absolutely right. It's that self-regulation, it's that ability to know what to do when you don't know what to do. It's the ability to seek and ask for help and not just sit there and let the river go over you. Uh, it, those kind of skills are very critical. And uh, I would expect that those students who had those skills before COVID would be amongst the more successful compared to those who didn't, who completely depend on the teacher for the next instruction. They completely depended on their parents to know whether it was right or wrong. And they got into that really unfortunate situation where they didn't know what to do when they did next. And so we've known for many decades that this is a pretty critical outcome of our schooling and we do need to teach it there's a lot of programs out there right through new south wales have been looking at self-regulation programs how students think looking at the different strategies are giving them some freedoms to trial and see that errors are opportunities to learn whereas many kids think that if they make an error they're wrong it's a mistake it's evil some parents reinforce that notion that not getting perfect scores is a bad thing if you get a perfect score that was probably too easy and so we've got to see that notion of challenge as a key part of it. And I think that that's, again, something that we should really foster as we go back to, to the new normal and bring back better in terms of looking at that self-regulation. I do, I do a lot of work with a tremendous number of schools, both here in Australia and throughout the world. And one of our focus is on that self-regulation. And we are finding really quite positive things have been happening during the COVID that kids who have those skills. So yeah, we do need to teach them. It is part of the uh, claims and the curriculum in New South Wales and across Australia. And so one of the things, Mark, we you might want to think about is what um, Singapore did. After SARS in 2003, they made it compulsory every year for two days of um, the school year for kids to be at home with parents and teaching the teachers how to work in those circumstances. In a sense, they were preparing for the next outbreak, which happened. Um, obviously just recently but that concept of how now we can do that in schools we don't have to have students sitting in front of us all the time waiting for our next instruction and our next 80 percent of our talking time we can find ways within schools to give kids and teach them not just dump them out there and say go and learn but teach them the skills of learning not just by themselves but with other students without necessarily having the teacher present that's what we ask of you and i when we go out to the workforce why aren't we doing that in school why aren't we setting up assessments so that they're done collectively? Now, I know there's all kinds of issues and problems in that, but this is the kind of thing that we should be facing and dealing with to build these skills of self-regulation. One of the things that, that this disruption and having students learning from home does for us is to make us think through, well, what are the opportunities for students to be learning on their own and learning from home? And what is best done at home? And what is best done in the classroom? What's your thinking about the future mix of learning in the classroom and learning from home? Well, I think that we've known for a long time that homework, particularly in primary school, has a close to zero effect. It goes up in high school, and that's primarily because of the nature of homework. Homework where it's a chance to practice something already learned has a much more positive effect. 
but projects where you do at home that you have to depend on the parents for the skill set, they have a zero to negative effect. And what's happened over these last nine weeks is that many parents have realized they're actually not very good teachers. Mm -hmm. They don't have the same kind of expertise. They don't know how to engage and motivate the kids. And you know, when you think when most homes, they had one or two or three kids, most teachers have 20 to 30 in high school, 100 to 200 kids they face every week. And they are extremely good at doing that. And many parents realize they couldn't. But I do think there is one thing that we have learned about parents is how do we teach the parents what the concept of learning is like in a modern classroom? And when parents learn that language of, of learning, then I think we can be a much better off system and they can be more involved. I don't think it is the role of parents to be the, 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 the police at home to monitor and have surveillance. But they can be involved in understanding and listening and understanding and realizing that errors are opportunities, of realizing that struggle is a good word. I think there's a tremendous amount we've learned over the last. I have a hunch, Mark, that if nothing else, the parents of New South Wales will hold teachers in incredibly higher esteem as a consequence of this. Yeah, I was going to ask you that. Do, do you think broadly the esteem and reputation of teachers has been enhanced and, and that there is, there will be greater insight by parents and, and a greater sense for parents to more actively support the teaching and learning that's taking place in schools? Don't you hear that sigh of relief today? Back to school. Well, yeah, yeah and I think as, a, as a, in our roles, we really have to capitalise on this. We have to remind teach, parents and voters and politicians and press that you know, teaching does have an incredible amount of expertise. And that expertise we need to value, we need to nurture, we need to capture, we need to esteem. And I really do hope that we make a lot out of this moment where we say, hey, look, this is the skill that teachers have. Like, if we have this conversation in six weeks' time, it'll be about what an amazing recovery we've had. Put it down to the expertise of teachers. The thing that bothers me is that sometimes teachers aren't very good at getting up and saying, it was them that did this. The, Look, one of the, the things, there's been quite a lot of media commentary in a, a sense. You know, NAPLAN was cancelled this year. Uh, because of the disruption, there's been a sense, well, what's the new testing program, whether the federal government or all state and territory government should be rolling out NAPLAN equivalents? Uh, what, what's your level of confidence as far as teachers' ability to be able to run their own assessments in classrooms and get good insight into learning progress or learning gaps as they may have emerged over recent uh, weeks and months? Well, I've been doing it for, for, for eons and often in circumstances where there weren't the national testing. And so teachers have an incredible amount of testing. The one struggle I have here in Australia is that when we haven't really resourced our schools very well for progress and growth assessments. So there's all kinds of interesting dilemmas about doing that. Not easy to do it. And I think it's incumbent on us to devise a system where teachers have more access to seeing what the growth looks like over time. Like I've kept pushing the line and I see Gonski too picked it up about at least a year's growth for, for a year's input. Well, that requires a certain kinds of testing that's not so common in school. So I think that, and I know there's lots of groups throughout the country working on this, but in general, um, I, teachers have an incredible amount of resources at the moment relating to assessment. So I'm not so worried about the fact that NAPLAN's not on this year. I have views about NAPLAN that it does serve some purposes, but it doesn't serve the purpose of telling a teacher how well the kids have recovered from COVID or not. They've got much more sophisticated tools to do that. So I'm very confident that that's not going to be a major problem. 
I wonder about the challenges in schools given the level of anxiety in the broader community. Um, you know, we can see that in some of the reporting uh, over the weekend here. Most parents relieved to send their children back. Um, some parents concerned and anxious about sending their children off to school whilst there's still a pandemic uh, in the community. And of course, many families are under enormous pressure at this time, economic pressure, jobs lost, level of uncertainty um, and, and disruption that's evident uh, in society everywhere. To what extent do our schools play this role of being a, a sense of ballast, a sense of security, a sense of certainty, uh, given all the uncertainty that swirls around the community? Oh, yeah, look, I, I've seen those surveys, you know, 80% of parents are stressed, blah, blah, blah. You've got to worry about the other 20%. This is really affecting a lot of people in a lot of incredible ways. But that whole stress research 20 years ago switched and it didn't, we don't talk about those stresses anymore. We talk about the coping strategies. And this is the art and the skill of teachers to give those kids the coping strategies to deal with us. I'm not denying the stress out there. It's in my own family and it's probably in yours and many others. There are stresses. But what are those coping strategies? And that's what teachers are very good at, giving kids safe havens. And in many cases, school is a safe haven compared to some homes. Quite frankly, it is. It is giving those kids a sense of belonging, a sense of being with others. And so I'm pretty confident that schools, you're right, will be a ballast. They will be a, a, a safe ground to build up those skills. And one of the things we ask of our schools is how do we give kids those social skills and coping strategies? Um, it's not gonna, obviously, kids are gonna be differentially affected. But once again, schools are pretty good at detecting when that happens. They have a lot of duty of care. Uh, we know that kids don't leave those stresses at the school gates. Teachers have been dealing with them for a long time. Right at the moment, my argument is, be more open and aware. Some of those stresses may be manifest in ways we're not normally seen. So be aware, it probably is a symptom that the kids aren't coping. Teach them the strategies. Part of your important work for Australian education, John, is to work with leaders and on around leadership capability. You know, I think part of the, the pressure we've seen around return to schools is teachers concerned about their own health and well-being. The research indicates quite clearly that students aren't great carriers of COVID-19 or transmitters of COVID-19 to each other and to other adults. But uh, as schools return, we've got to exercise social distancing amongst adults. And we know that uh, some teachers are concerned that they might be in higher risk categories for the disease. Um, what, what's your advice to principals and school leadership teams about how they lead their fellow professionals when, you know, the, the, the adults on the school staff might be arriving with heightened levels of concern or anxiety about returning to work at this time? Yeah, I'm very aware of that. Two of my own, own children, young adults, are teachers in schools. And um, sometimes we have forgotten that you know, they are at, at risk. And that's why you're saying with school leaders how they are attentive and certainly with the schools, my two children, two children, two young adults are in, um, they've been, school leaders have been very aware and constantly alert. I think you know, some of the technologies we have now to make sure we pick up as early detection as possible. But that's, this is a real problem and this is where the stresses can be manifest in schools amongst staff and why we have to deal with the staff in terms of um, their coping strategies, how we set up safety, uh, how we in a sense, make sure that as far as possible, uh, we've got our schools the safest to be in, in building that belongingness 
um, amongst the staff. I don't think there's an easy answer there, but I, I'm with you. I think that that's the thing we have to worry more about, about than the children passing on the COVID-19 is how we deal with those teachers and how we are going to have to do that for unfortunately quite a long time to come in the, in the current climate. And part of that will be, you know, setting up schools uh, and, and setting up the processes for how school operations are going to be. But part yes. of it, in a sense, will be um, how leaders effectively communicate with their uh, school staff as well and how how in a sense the school staff feel listened to and and part of the strategy as, as it emerges at a school level absolutely yes john it's interesting um you know reading your your um, articles on this and even talking with you today um you seem to be an optimistic voice about um, how our schools can recover from this level of uh, disruption and and how we can actually find opportunities to improve the way teaching and learning takes place in schools uh, on the other side of COVID-19. Mark, when you work as long as I have with teachers in schools, you never underestimate their skills to solve a problem. You never underestimate their skills to come together and do the best for their kids. I've seen, in other countries, I have seen some horrific policies been introduced into schools where teachers have gone overboard to protect the students and make sure the students do the absolute best that they can um, in, in those sometimes unusual circumstances. And so when you start from that premise, from the history of schooling and teaching where they have gone above and beyond, like there's probably not many other professions that have said one day, you're not gonna do what you do normally, you have to do something completely different. And they did. And now they're saying, we're gonna have to do it again different as you come back into the recovery phase. And they are, and they're not squealing. They are getting on and they're doing it. And I don't think we're gonna have many children that are gonna slip through because of the expertise of the teachers. So when you start from that premise, you see COVID as a, another disruption that they deal with. And you said bushfires, you said floods. It's the normality of schools that we deal with disruption. Probably not as big as this one, but we do. And so I'm very confident about the resilience of teachers, the expertise. And I go back to what we were talking about before. That notion of that expertise can't be lost. I fear for the amateurization coming into schools. I fear that anybody think they can teach. Well, have some parents learned that's not true. Yeah. And, and I think how we can build on that expertise and you know, having high standards for being a teacher, that's how we're gonna get more able, competent and wonderful people coming into our profession. We've been given an incredible opportunity now to stand up and say that, and I hope we do. I wondered. I yep. wondered, given the disruption, but given the disruption we were seeing even before COVID-19 on the impact of globalisation and technology, you know, AI and machine learning on the job market, the disappearance of many white collar jobs that uh, is being impacted by this sweeping economic reform that's been, uh, or economic change that's been rolling through society, whether in fact teaching may emerge as a more attractive profession uh, for many people. And, and I, I'm kind of wondering whether, in fact, there are parents who may have been uh, overwhelmed by the experience of trying to help their students learn from home. But given the economic shakeout we're going to see on the back of COVID-19, whether teaching actually um, might be a more attractive profession or it might provide an opportunity to draw more people into teaching as a result of all this. Well, people want to come into a profession because it has challenges, because it has expertise. And I also can imagine that there are many parents over this last nine weeks who may have said, hey, I'm not so bad at this. Maybe this is where I can move to. 
So there can be some benefits there. And I think that the more we, we show that that expertise happens, the more we're gonna get into our profession. The more we make it sound like it's something you can do with your eyes closed and people don't wanna stay in a profession. The other thing that I find fascinating, Mark, is you know, teachers who have been in our profession 10 to 15 years and have been extremely successful have probably been successful because they've done it alone. That world's changing. The new cohorts that are coming into teaching want to come into a profession that's a collaborative profession, that works as a collective. And this is where I know you and New South Wales have been working very hard with school leaders to build that sense of community, professional learning community, collaboration. And I think this is a really exciting thing to do and to, again, to take from this latest COVID. Those schools where the teachers have worked more as a team and not 20 or 30 individuals, I think are going to be much more successful. You talk about the stresses on teachers coming back in COVID. Those schools where they have been building professional learning communities and they work together, they're going to be more successful. And so once again, that whole notion of coming to a profession where we work together to make a difference to the lives of kids, you're not alone. I think that's an incredibly powerful message that hopefully will attract more to come into our profession. And I saw your suggestion that perhaps uh, when the year end rolls round, we should think of a, uh, a job lot nomination of Australian teachers for Australian of the Year this year, given all their remarkable work during this great disruption. Oh, look, I'm deadly serious about that. I do think that um, sometimes the small things to esteem our profession are really important. And I know we're going to be competing very hard against the, um, the health and the nurse profession. So together, that kind of helping profession, the nurses and the teachers, you know, Mark, join with me. Let's put in a submission for Australian of the Year. Let's identify some of those incredible teachers and principals we have up there and salute them by giving them the honours. Every other profession do it. The police do it. The military do it. The others, the lawyers do it. Why don't we as a profession it's have this kind of esteem? It's a fantastic idea. And thanks for your, all your insights uh, today, John. I think, I think you're a voice of... Uh, experience and knowledge, but also a voice of uh, confidence and optimism in the professionals who work with our students every day, and uh, a word of wise advice to our systems and system leaders as well. Thanks for joining us today, John Hattie, on the Every Student Podcast. Pleasure. And thank you for listening to this episode of Every Student. Never miss an episode by subscribing on your podcast platform of choice or by heading to our website at education.nsw.gov.au slash every hyphen student hyphen podcast. Or if you know someone who is a remarkable innovative educator that we could all learn from, you can get in touch with us via Twitter at New South Wales Education, on Facebook, or email everystudentpodcast at det.nsw.edu.au. Thanks again, and I'll catch you next time.